So tonight, we are beginning the last of our study within the church, and we're looking at, uh, as you may remember, we've looked at the definition of the church, we've looked at what the function of the church is, we've looked at the role of the church in culture and society, we've looked at the leadership that God has established for the church, and we've looked at uh, the gifts that God has given the church, and then finally, uh, we're going to close our study of the church by looking at worship. Now, worship is, is anything that we do in our lives to glorify God. The Bible calls us to live a life of worship. Specifically, though, we're going to be primarily talking about worship within the church and that God's ultimate plan for His church, the ultimate purpose, the thing that we are supposed to be doing is worshiping God with our lives, with our voices, and with our actions. And so we're going to take the next few weeks and dig deeply into that thought process. Uh, the book that we've been following now for the last four years, I know it's hard to believe, but we've been doing this for four years. The book that we've been following for the last four years, Grudem's Systematic Theology, defines corporate worship as worship is the activity of, God, of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and hearts. So we're going to unpack that some and deal, deal with that. But in this definition, we note that worship is an act of glorifying God. Yet all aspects of our lives are supposed to be glorifying God. So this definition separates that worship is something we do when we come into God's presence, when we're conscious of adoring Him in our hearts, and when we praise Him with our voice and speak about Him so others may hear. And so worship is when we're conscious of that. Everything that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, is supposed to be done to God's glory. I have often taught, and it's, as I taught through the book of Hebrews, and that we'll see tonight, that Hebrews, that becomes very pinpoint crystal clear. Uh, I, I tried to say that um, anything that we do, if we do it with the conscious thought that I am glorifying God with this action, can be an act of worship. Uh, worship can be changing your baby's diaper. Worship can be weed eating in the yard. Worship can be, if, if you're, you're conscious of that, this act, I'm doing it to the glory of God, uh, that can be an act of worship. But within the church, we're called on to corporately, together worship, which is that we consciously think about what we're doing. So we refer to 10 to 11 20, 11, 30, that time frame, as the worship hour. And that's not necessarily bad language. That's not necessarily a misrepresentation. That is a period of time when we come together as the church. We're the church, remember, as we've, we've studied this, as we're all out, we're the church. The church is made up of all of us. And so once or twice a week, the church comes together. And everything that we do in this service, in this room on Sunday mornings, is worship. If we're conscious of the fact that what we're doing is we're doing it to glorify God. It is worship for us to sing. It is worship for us to lift our voices in praise to God. It is worship for us to give. Because we're saying, God, I'm giving you the first fruits of my, my, my earnings. I'm giving this back to you. It is worship for us to obediently listen to God's word being preached. 
with an attitude that says, I'm willing to change my life in the light of what God's Word teaches. That is an act of worship. So we, we're kind of narrowing it down. We're going to narrow it down a little bit more into the corporate act of singing and glorifying God. The text that's really going to drive our entire conversation for the next two, few weeks is Colossians three sixteen and 17, which says, Let the Word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Um, Paul here is describing, he's closing out the book of Colossians, and he's telling them what they are to do as a church. This should be a description of what, if we want to be a New Testament church, of what our worship service looks like. That the Word of God dwells here in us richly. Which means that everything that we do draws its purpose, draws its meaning from God's Word. We don't do things just because it's the way we've always done it. We don't do things because that's the way Mama did it. We don't do things because it's not the way Mama did it. We do things because that's the way the Bible teaches us to do it. We are to to the God's words to dwell in us, we are. While we're teaching, preaching, singing, we are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So that tells me, in fact, what we've accidented on here is the regulative principle. Now, the regulative principle is what uh, we use as we choose the music that we sing. We ask the question, is the songs, do the songs that we sing, do they teach us, do they admonish us, do they add wisdom to us, and are they showing thankfulness to us, are we lifting up God with it? Now, you may think, well, sure, all Christian music does that. I would argue that is not true. If you listen to Christian radio, any, there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that if you replace Jesus or God's name with baby, baby, you wouldn't, couldn't tell the difference between that and a song on, <laughs> I started to say Q104. Q104 hadn't been in on the air in a long time. I'm showing my age. Um, on the radio, I don't even know what the, 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 just because it's labeled as a Christian song doesn't mean that it is. And in fact, there's a lot of Christian music. If you really listen to the lyrics, it's a lot less about God and a lot more about me. I'm singing songs that praise the fact that my relationship with God makes me feel a certain way. Well, we don't want to be singing that stuff here because that's not lifting up God. That's lifting up me. And we're not about singing praises unto our name. And then the final thing I want us to kind of have as our framework is, is that we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we, in the, in the church today, we use that as an addendum. Like I'll, I'll pray for stuff that I want, and then I'll say, in Jesus' name, amen. And that means that God's got to do what I say to do, right? Because I've tricked him. I put in Jesus' name on the end of it. Well, that's not what that means. When we do something in someone's name, we're doing it 
doing things that would be things that they would do if they were here. We talked about this in a legal sense. If I give, if I give uh, Bruce a power of attorney and say, okay, you can do things in my name, that means that the things that he does, he needs to do as if it was decisions that I would make. And so when we do things in Jesus' name, we're actively, consciously asking the question, if Jesus was here in Glencoe today, what would he be doing? And as we do those things, we're doing them in his name. We're not doing it so that we get the glory. We're doing them so that he gets glorified. Which, that's not an, an, a, a trick or, or something that we're trying to pull here. We're recognizing in that that there's nothing good that comes from us outside of Christ. And so, if left to myself, I wouldn't be doing anything good. And so we can't get too, too uppity about it. And so we do things in Jesus' name. So, let's dig in. God's purpose from creation has been that mankind... In the, in the original creation, and in God's purpose throughout the Old Testament, is to make a way where mankind could worship Him. In Exodus seven sixteen, as Moses was talking to Pharaoh, God, or actually God, was telling Moses to say to Pharaoh, "And you shall say to him, and God is speaking, the Lord, the God of Hebrew of the Hebrews, sent me to, to you, saying." Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And then Moses told Pharaoh, but so far you have not obeyed. The reason why God wanted his children to move out of Egypt was so that they could serve him. This is God speaking. So that they could serve him, which is worship. And the irony of the situation is, is the great worship service that occurred where God himself descended on the mountain. And authentic worship occurred as the thunder rolled, the mountain jumped. God warned them, don't let any of you touch the side of this mountain because if you do, you're going to fall over dead. As that was going on, there was inauthentic worship going on over here. So always the enemy tries to rob us of authentic worship. In fact, uh, Edmund Clowney, uh, who I'm, I'm going to quote a lot through this, God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediate goal of the Exodus. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice and worship him. Segwaying just a little bit, and I know I've talked about this in sermons before, but I want us to, to think deeply on this. Why do you think while the children of Israel see the Shekinah glory of God descend on the mount, they make an idol of a calf and say, this is the God that took us out of the land of Egypt? Doesn't that, do you ever, when you read that, do you think, have they, have they lost their mind? And I would offer to you that a lot of the, the music that we've just talked about, the stuff that, that, that is not a God-honoring, God-centered Christian music, is doing the same thing. 
You see, the children of Israel saw God descending from a mount on this mountain and they couldn't control him. In the words of C.S. Lewis, God was not safe. And so they created an idol of this calf, and a calf you can control. You notice it's not a bull. It doesn't represent power and authority. They could see that for real. That calf, you can control a calf. Any of you been around cows? Okay, so uh, we were talking the other day about an uh, interesting thing about cows is uh, that a cow, if you stick your fingers in their nose, they will go where you want them to go. Or if you ever see, they'll put rings in their nose. It's, 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 there's uh, supposedly a nerve ending in there that just it flips them out. I, the story that I always tell is, is we, uh, when we had the farm, I had, um, we had an ice storm coming in in, in late uh, February, early March, as happens in Alabama frequently. And um, I had a heifer that was about to calf. And the, the night that the ice storm was coming in, she, she disappeared on me. So I'm walking the fence, and it's getting cold. And I finally find her, and she had calved right up against a fence. And so when the calf was born, it was on the outside of the fence, and Mama was on the inside of the fence. And Mama flipped out. Um, <clears throat> she cut herself up trying to get through that fence of her calf. And ended up, after she tore the fence up and cut herself up, she ran off in the woods, and I couldn't get her. It's now 10, 11 o'clock, and that, those calves can't really regulate their heat when they're, they're, the, they're little bitty like that. And so I was scared to death that this calf was going to die. And um, so I picked the calf up and put it in the back of the truck and, and went to the house and said, So, Ann, uh, what do you think about a calf spending the night in the house? And um, she said, No, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. And so I, I uh, got a, a box and, and some hay and put the calf in, in the back hall where she couldn't, it wouldn't get in the way. And, but yeah, we had a cow in the house for, for a night. And that morning, about 3 or 4 o'clock, that calf woke us up. Calves can be loud, even though they're a little bitty. And so I went and got that calf right at sunrise, and I pick, just picked it up and put it in the back of the truck and drove over to the last place that I'd seen that heifer, and that calf sitting there lulling, mm, 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 here comes mama trotting out of the woods. And so I went to go get the calf to put the calf on the ground so it could reunite with its mom. And just as I'm reaching in there, that calf's little hoof came whack and popped me right in the mouth. Busted my lips, and I had a big lip for a while. But I set the calf down, and off they went, and everything was good to go. And I ended up uh, having that calf, for, it grew into a cow, and everything was good. My point is, of the story, is that I could pick that calf up. But I couldn't pick that mama cow up. I couldn't control it. It was run off in the woods. I couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't go get it. Couldn't find it. But I could control that calf. And so when the children of Israel made a calf, that's a God they can control. It represents wealth. It represents what the, the things that they want. But you can control a calf. You can't control Yahweh. And we want a God that will, we can control, not that can control us. In fact, I would argue that 90% of the time when people on television talk about God, it's a God that they've created in their own image. And you know that's true because they'll say things like Miss Oprah. My God would never send anybody to hell. Well, you're absolutely right. 
the false idol that you've created in your mind, will not send anybody to hell. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has said what he will and will not do, and you don't get to edit that. We don't get to pick what, the way God chooses to reveal himself. We don't get to pick the way God has told us to worship him. We don't get to pick the way that God has said for us to approach him. And in Romans chapter 1, the Bible lays out very tightly the march of man to wickedness. Turn with me to Romans 1. It's worth, it's worth visiting. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who? By their unright- unrighteousness... Hold on a sec, got to fix this. And I know this probably looks really dumb on the video. By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this tells me, Romans 1, 18-21 specifically says... There's no such thing as an atheist. I don't believe they exist. You cannot walk outside and look at the stars on a clear night and think, this happened randomly. It is more intelligent for me to walk along the beach and find a watch and say, isn't it amazing how the waves over time have randomly placed molecules together to create the intricate gears that fit together that can tell time? That would make more sense. The way the human body fits together, the way on a micro level, down at a microscopic level, at an atomic level, the way God has pieced everything together. If you look at an astronomical level, I just recently was reading an article not written by a believer that was talking about how Jupiter, because of its mass, has such a heavy gravity that it protects Earth from any, any kind of asteroids and stuff coming in, that if it wasn't for the fact that Jupiter, which we can barely even see, sitting way out there, millions of miles away, if it wasn't for the fact that Jupiter sat there, the Earth would be uninhabitable because it would be riddled by asteroids all the time. But anything that comes at Earth gets sucked into the gravitational pull of Jupiter and gets thrown into an asteroid field in between Jupiter and the next planet. And, and the article was saying, talking about how nature has protected earth. And I'm laughing at it, going, that ain't nature, that's God. That's a plan. And we're just now getting broad enough to figure it out. And so, mankind looks at the world, the things that God's created, and Paul doesn't just say they had, had realized that they were God, but that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived. The issue with believing is in a God that created you is that he gets the right to make a claim to right and wrong in your life. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Now notice that before they became futile in their thinking, this is every human being, by the way. This is not on a macro level of humanity. This is every human being. The two things they don't want to do is honor God and thank Him. Think back to what we read in Colossians, what we are to do in worship as a church. We're to give thanks and to honor Him through praise. 
So the very thing that we rebel against in our natural state, we're being called to do within the church. They claim to be wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So first, man refuses to honor God and thank Him, and then God turns them over so that they start worshiping other things. And I would say the, the number one religion in America is a big old letter I. Grab the gusto. And one of the ways that we worship is through sports. One of the ways that we worship is through our acquisition of possessions. One of the, we worship that, that God through all kinds of different ways. But our primary thing is that we worship man, primarily ourselves. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalties for their errors. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So first is a refusal to acknowledge God, to honor Him, to be thankful. Then their mind is turned over to false worship, and then God turns them over to do whatever they want to do with their bodies, to dishonor themselves. Does that sound like a familiar story to you? So be careful when I hear popular preachers say things like, uh, God's going to punish America because of homosexuality. That's not what this text is telling me. It's telling me that because we refuse to honor God and because we refuse to be thankful to Him, God has punished us with homosexuality. That's exactly what the text is saying. For this reason, God gave them up to... uh, Okay, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with... Now listen to this list. Before you get too wrapped around a hub about those filthy people who are doing things that you're not doing. Listen to the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, coming up with new ways to be wicked, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Goodness, that sounds like a TV series, doesn't it? Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The most telling thing I've seen about our country in a long time was the New York State legislators celebrating the murder of babies. Unbelievable. And yet, it shouldn't be, because it's laid out exactly how it's going to come together. And so the antidote for this isn't us telling people to start acting right. The antidote to this kind of behavior is worship. Acknowledging 
who God is, honoring for who he is, and being thankful for what he's provided for us. You realize that in the garden, God told Adam, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So the moment that Adam and Eve and us represented by them in that garden, the moment that humanity took of that fruit and ate of it in violation of what their creator had said, every day after it that a human bring draws breath is a grace and a mercy that we don't deserve. We fell dead in the garden. And any steps we take after that are, is God being slow to anger and withholding the wrath that we deserve. And so we should acknowledge that. We should honor that. We should be thankful for that. Every breath you take. C.S. Lewis, whenever asked about the problem of pain, would always respond, the bigger problem for me is the problem of joy. Why does anyone, no matter how wicked they are, have the opportunity to experience joy and laughter? Because God should have struck us all dead in the garden. Okay. God established other festivals after, after Sinai, uh, uh, C. God established other festivals in which the whole nation would assemble before him three times a year. He said that Israelites are a nation formed for worship, called to assemble in the courts of the Lord and to praise together the name of the Most High. Yet Kent Clowney points out that rather than worshiping God in a unified holy assembly, the people turned aside to serving idols. And rather than assembling the people to worship before him, and in judgment, God scattered the people in exile. So Clowney argues that the primary sin of the Israelites was they didn't worship and that he, they didn't allow the worship of God to have the positive impact on their life. We see in Romans 1 the negative impact of not living lives of worship. And so we see throughout the Old Testament the negative impact of not living a life of worship. We want to say, what's the positive impact of worship? God promised that his purpose for his people would yet be fulfilled. So in Isaiah 2 it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In these prophecies we see that the ultimate end of history is going to be that God will assemble all his people from all errors and dispensations and epochs, and we shall as one worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The point, the end game of redemption is, is that we're drawn together on that day for all of eternity, spending that time in worship. In fact, we read that same message again in Isaiah 25, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 66. <coughs> in Jeremiah, he actually proclaims curses upon various and sundry people. 
I listed Moab, and the other texts that I listed are, are Assyria and other nations. And then he ends every curse by saying, yet I will restore the fortunes of those people in the latter days. Which tells me that people from Moab will be around the throne. I don't know any Moabites, but some, somehow some of them are going to get saved. And they will spend eternity around the throne. Same thing with the Assyrians. Same thing with... So that tells me that the gospel call, the reason why God calls us to proclaim the gospel is because he desires worship of all nations. The fulfillment of that promise that we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the fulfillment of that promise began only when Jesus started to build his church. Pentecost was the time of first fruits, the beginning of the great harvest of redemption. Peter preached the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. The Spirit had been poured out. The worship of the new age had been ushered in. The church, the assembly for worship, was praising God. And now the ingathering has begun. We are the beginning. And when we come together as a church and we assemble as God's people in one place and we sing the praises of God, we are the beginnings of the kingdom of God that will stretch throughout all eternity. It's not some little game we're playing on Sunday morning when we sing. What we're doing is eternal. What we're doing is, is the first fruits of what God has been building for for all of human history. We, as the church, that we've stu- as we've studied this, you should see that the church is what Jesus, that's the bride that he, he created. And when we come together as a people, when we assemble together and we lift our voices in praise, it is unbelievably powerful. In Matthew 28, Hopefully you guys got this because I, I taught it in here three or four times and then I taught it up there two or three times. We should, we should if North Glencoe knows nothing, we should know that the Great Commission is our call. That's what our purpose is as a church today. And you can see here that it's about worship. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And make disciples of all nations. From the very beginning, the mission statement of the church is bathed in the concept of worship. Missions happens. Evangelism happens because worship doesn't. God deserves the praise of all the people of the earth. And we take the gospel out so that people can be transformed into His image, joined together with other believers and lift their voices in praise. That's why we do it. Yes. That's our job. And that becomes crystalline clear in Hebrews 12 when the writer writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose made the words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So he hearkens back to 
where we began on Mount Sinai. And he says to this church that he's speaking to, remember back to then. Remember back to that thunder on the mountain. The Shekinah glory of God descending. Moses being put in the cleft of the rock and God putting his hand over the rock as he passed by so that Moses could see his hindquarters, as the Hebrew says, as he walks past. And even then, his face shined for 40 days. In the middle of that, he goes on to say, but you, and that's, but you, but you, have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When we assemble together in this room, and when believers assemble together in other churches around our community, and believers assemble together in the jungles of the Amazon, or in a field in Africa, or hidden in a basement somewhere in China, that is not a small thing. The writer of Hebrews compares it to God descending on the mountain. That when we assemble together and lift our voices in praise, that that has thunder through eternity. That an innumerable group of angels are gathered to assemble. That we step into the presence of a holy God by our act of lifting honor and praise to the God who created us. We're undoing the curse of Romans 1 in our own life. And we're saying, no, we will thank the God who created us. No, we will honor Yahweh for who He is and what He is. And we lift our voice in praise. And so our worship is the point. Our worship is what God is working toward. And our worship is what we will do for eternity. Any questions? And Brian, we're done.